up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. We'll learn the effects of smoking on the health of our bones. What they found is that in the smokers, they make a considerably less amount of collagen, which they've extrapolated out to saying that these smokers have a decreased ability to heal. Then we'll discuss what mental health, trauma, and violence have to do with community displacement. Uh, trauma and violence are huge contributing factors to the quality, uh, lowering the quality of life and affecting people's mental health. And we'll talk with a pair of medical ethicists who will walk us through one of their case studies. So here's this woman in the hospital. Um, she's had a serious neurologic injury. She's uh, had multiple organ system failure and she had no health care proxy. We'll have all that plus a checkup from the neck up and a visit from our healing muse right after the news. Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, medicine, and science with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, a psychiatrist will discuss the effects of community displacement. Then two medical ethicists will review one of their case studies. But first, a doctor specializing in orthopedics will explain how smoking affects bone health. Upstate Medical University. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. In the studio, I have with me today Dr. Michael Fitzgerald. He was born in Syracuse, earned his medical degree at Upstate Medical University, and now he's an orthopedic surgeon here specializing in hand, wrist, and elbow and shoulder care. Today, he's speaking with us about something more broad, the effects of cigarette smoking on bone health. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Well, we've heard about the damage smoking does to the lungs and the heart, but the bones are something else. So, what, it, what does cigarette smoking do to our bones? Well, cigarette smoking, uh, as we all know, it doesn't have just one effect. It, it affects all aspects of the body, uh, and the bones are no different. Um, and so depending on how we're treating the bones, whether it's bones, soft tissue, muscle, tendons, uh, cigarette smoke can have a, a, a very um, impactful um, uh, effect on healing, on um, blood flow, on um, just even patients' outcomes in general, whether they have more pain or not. Uh, and so it's something that as orthopedic surgeons we, we pay attention to, uh, we're very concerned about, uh, and it can have a, a detrimental effect on what we do for the patients. Does it make the bones, does it set the bones up to, to for fracture or injury? Just well, it, it doesn't necessarily set them up for fracture or injury per se. Uh, I guess you could in some situ situations say that. It's more so we see it uh, in the um, healing phase. So after bones are fractured or after muscles or tendons are injured, um, they need the ideal uh, environment to heal. And smoking with almost over 4,000 different chemicals that's in a cigarette make that environment uh, more difficult um, for the body to heal itself. So when we talk about cigarettes, are we talking about electric electronic cigarettes as well? Well, a lot of the literature and this, the research that's been done has been looking at smoking specifically. Um, there is some literature on, you know, chewing tobacco and things like that. Uh, in, in my search of the, of the literature, there's not a ton of um, information about electronic cigarettes uh, just yet, which is, to me, kind of makes it a little bit scary uh, because there's not much known about it or the effects of it. And so using it, you're kind of... Um, putting yourself at risk because we don't know that much about it. 
Um, and what about secondhand smoke? If you live with a smoker? Yeah. Uh, again, there. Uh, from what I have seen, there's not a ton of research about it, but you can uh, at least infer that there's going to be similar effects of that smoke depending on how much you're around it um, that it would have on the primary smoker. Not as much, but uh, still some effect. Now, you mentioned uh, 4,000 or so chemicals in, in tobacco cigarettes. Um, nicotine and carbon monoxide are just two of the chemicals. W- what do they do that affects the bones specifically, or is there something about them? So nicotine um, has a lot of different effects on the body. Uh, we know that it is a vasoconstrictor, so it can decrease blood flow um, to the different parts of uh, the body. Uh, we also know from a bone healing standpoint that it can actually decrease the activity of osteoblasts, which are the cells that uh, help produce bone, uh, as well as many other effects on, on the body and the musculoskeletal system. Uh, carbon monoxide in of itself um, decreases the ability of the blood to carry oxygen. Um, and you've heard of carbon monoxide poisoning. And, and so in, in theory, you're putting uh, something that's very, very detrimental to your health uh, in your system. And again, for, for bone healing, for soft tissue healing, uh, the, the, the body needs oxygen. And so you, you're putting something in there that's stealing that oxygen away from the environment. Now, uh, collagen, I've, I've heard that that's production of collagen is lower in smokers. What yeah. is collagen and why does that matter? Yeah, so collagen is a, is basically a, a, a component that makes up your uh, skin, your soft tissue, and is very vital in your healing. Um, there's been a couple studies that have been done that have looked at um, smokers and non-smokers in a unique way to see how much collagen they can produce by looking at factors that um, serve as the collagen um, production. And what they found is that in the smokers, they make a considerably less amount of collagen, which they've extrapolated out to saying that these smokers have a decreased ability to heal. Interesting. All right. Well, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Michael Fitzgerald, an orthopedic surgeon at Upstate. Um, so tell me, do you, when you have patients um, seeking care from you and they're smokers, what kind of a conversation do you have with them? Yeah, it, it kind of all depends on what they're there for. You know, we have the information on everyone that comes in about whether they're smoking or not. And if they are smokers, we have a little discussion about it. And usually, depending on what I'm doing for them, we discuss how the smoking can affect not only their current state, but their future outcomes. Um, and it's been shown that almost in every subspecialty of orthopedics that smoking can have a detrimental effect on uh, multiple different surgeries. And so if they're, whether they're having surgery or not, we discuss how the smoking can affect it uh, and how it would be beneficial for them to at least decrease, if not quit altogether. Okay. All right. Are they generally receptive to that, or do you get some skeptics? Yeah, so it all kind of depends. Um, You know, people who have fractures that need to be fixed or um, fractures that haven't healed that need a a second or third surgery, um, smoking can be a big deal. Uh, And so I really stress to the patients how important it is to quit. Uh, And usually these patients are in quite a bit of pain. And I use that as a motivator for them, that if they decrease smoking, there's a good chance that their pain is going to subside sooner. Uh, And they're pretty receptive to that usually. Interesting. So how is it that um, smoking affects the pain? So it's not really known how the smoking affects the pain per se. There's probably uh, multiple different pathways for that. Uh, We do know that smoking can decrease blood flow. Uh, We do know that um, it increases uh, what's called platelet aggregation or uh, clotting factors in the body. Um, It also, as I said, decreases the ability for the bone or for the body to um, 
make bone, uh, and it disrupts certain um, cascades uh, without throughout the body uh, that can alter the healing pathway. And probably all those mechanisms combined uh, make smokers in certain situations have worse outcomes and more pain in the long run. So it just de- delays the healing, or does it make healing impossible? And in- it definitely delays the healing in a lot of cases, and in some cases, definitely makes the or the bone not heal, which is what we call non-unions. And so we see that in smokers, in a lot of scenarios, have an increased risk of non-union or, or not healing oh. of the bone. Interesting. Um, now, what about bone density? Does smoking have an effect on that? Uh, it seems like it it, it may. Um, there are some studies that look at. Um, uh, women especially, uh, that show that um, postmenopausal women uh, who we know have problems with bone density already, if they are um, concurrent smokers, uh, have uh, worse problems with this. Uh, and so there is some, some literature that shows that if you're a smoker, uh, the older you get, um, there, there may be worse problems with bone density. Hmm. Okay. Now, um, you mentioned uh, talking with some of your patients about the need to quit smoking before surgery or or whatever. Um, Do you think orthopedics, I mean, should that be their job? Should orthopedic surgeons have a role in... I think, you know, sometimes there's a stereotype that orthopedic surgeons just look at the bones and that's all we do. But it's our job as all physicians to look at the patient as a whole. Um, And I think, you know, smoking is part of that. And it's even more important because smoking can have such an impact on multiple aspects of the body. And so I think it, it, we do have a pretty big role um, to make sure that not only do we mention it, but we talk to our patients about how it can affect um, their outcome. And there's a couple of studies that have been done that, that have shown that even if an orthopedic surgeon takes 60 to 90 seconds uh, to talk to the patient about about their smoking and how they can quit, that actually does make a difference. And so I think just mentioning it and telling them, you know, you have something wrong with your with your bones or with your soft tissue and your smoking can make it worse or make you have a worse outcome, that a lot of people will listen and take it to heart. So maybe because it's a concrete issue staring at them exactly. right at that moment, because um, I can't imagine that a primary care provider hasn't had a similar exactly. conversation in e- the past. Exactly. But. And I think sometimes it's hard when there's not... Um, like you said, a concrete reason, there's not pain, there's not a motivation to quit smoking, that sometimes it's a lot harder. Uh, but when you have someone with a broken wrist or uh, a rotator cuff tear that they're in pain, if you tell them that by quitting smoking, this may allow you to heal quicker and feel better sooner, uh, that that's a pretty good motivating factor for them. So if they've been smoking all their life and then they fracture something um, and they quit right before surgery, is, is that really going to have an effect? Yeah, there's some good literature that shows that if they quit before or even quit soon thereafter, that they can have better outcomes um, versus people who continue to smoke throughout their recovery process. And so even if they smoke their whole lives uh, and they can quit around the time of their surgery, they actually can have better outcomes. So I just thought of something. If you, I mean, no one plans a fracture, mm-hmm. so that just happens. Are, are, do you have to quit cold turkey then because you're going to be having surgery the next day? Or? No, and a lot of people that's very tough for them to do, um, yeah. especially people who've been smoking for for years. Uh, and I think there's some statistics statistics out there that it, it takes about eight to ten times for someone to quit. Uh, fully uh, if they've been smoking for a while. So I even tell patients, even if they can cut down some, um, that it will be more beneficial. It's it's hard for people, especially in times of, of stress, which, you know, any right. fracture is stressful uh, for them to take away their stress reliever. So I, I don't make them or, or, or tell them that they have to, but I just even encourage them just to cut down. If they're a pack a day, maybe cut down to half a pack and see if they can tolerate that. 
Neat. Well, thank you. My guest has been orthopedic surgeon Michael Fitzgerald. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next up, how community displacement is like divorce on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. In the studio today, we have Upstate child psychiatrist, Dr. Diane St. Fleur. She's been a part of some recent panel discussions about community violence, and today she's going to speak with us about mental health, trauma, and violence in relation to community displacement. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Well, uh, tell us what you mean by community displacement. What is that? Community displacement is the process of a group of people being moved by someone else. So um, I'm living in a community with my fellow community members, and I'm told that I have to relocate because of someone else's uh, decisions and someone else's ideas and plans. Um, So within that... So against your will. Well... um, It may not necessarily be against my will. It may be a situation where I'm like, you know what, I want to move, but it wasn't a plan of mine. It not so against my will isn't the the term, but it's loss of agency. Uh Um, It's not being done by the person experiencing the move. It's being done by an other source. And that's and that's important because the experience of being moved, whether you agree with it or not, um, by someone else is a lot different than you being empowered to do so and you being in the lead and making the decision. And so within communities, community displacement, there's that component of loss of agency. And, and that's crucial, um, in a community when a, a community as a collective experiences, not having that control to say where they move, regardless if it's, supposed to be in their benefit or not, and regardless regardless if they may have agreed with it or not, if they had the chance to make that decision. Okay. Okay. Why, uh, why is that important? Well, um, it's important uh, on many fronts. Um, one is it's happening everywhere um, across the nation, including Syracuse, um, there are uh, a number of homes that will be affected affected by the I eighty one viaduct project. Oh, with that's the underway. That they're talking about what to do with. The yes, exactly, exactly. So we have a number of members of the Syracuse community that will be affected by this. Um, two, I uh, I consider uh, part of my research research's premise is that. Community displacement can be viewed as a form of trauma, similar to like a, a divorce. Um, you know, it, two people in a relationship with a family, suddenly they break up over whatever reasons, but it's a, 
it can be pretty traumatic, not just on the kids, but on the adults, right. you know, your family being ripped apart. And if you think of a community like a family, essentially that's what's happening. Your family's being ripped apart. Um, and, um, and so as a, as a, as a physician, as a child psychiatrist in particular, I consider, I, I think it's important for medical providers to be very aware uh, if their patients are experiencing community displacement, um, because um, not only do I see it as a form of trauma, uh, for obvious reasons, people being split apart, but it decreases the social cohesiveness of a community, meaning um, uh, sometimes when I'm in the community, I'll hear elders say, you know, remember back when, you know, we could leave our doors open? Remember back when... We had the good old days. The good old days, exactly. Remember back when, um, you know, the 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 mothers would look out for every everyone's kids. You didn't have to be biologically related. You just had the system. It was like a a, a a daycare system already built into the community. Um, you know, if mom was out to work, Mrs. Jones would make sure that you know we were safe. That's what I mean by social cohesiveness. Um, kids are no lo- kids are no longer um, uh, privy to that. It's almost like a luxury, and community displacement directly affects that. Um, uh, this notion of uh, so what I'm talking about when I, I say social cohesiveness and when I give those examples of you know Mrs. Jones watching out for other kids is is reciprocity and trust. You know there was there's reciprocity and trust in the community. It stabilizes the community, and these are the factors that mitigate, that um, that fight against crime, fight against gang violence, fight against you know the vices of of uh, that that affect our community today. And so that's why um, I believe community displacement is, is very important to be aware of, especially as a medical provider in this community. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, what you're talking about really it describes what a community is, if it's a strong community. Absolutely. Um, rather than just, I don't know, a neighborhood. Or- Absolutely. And, and if we take it a step further, there's this concept called psychology of space, which is essentially, you know how a baby becomes attached and bonds with their parents Essentially, that's what the concept is getting at, that we as human beings bond and attach to our, our place of living in a similar way. And, and so and, and it's important to be mindful of that when we create policies or um, decide to you know, move forward with grant applications that can um, potentially disrupt that attachment and bond. Um, that's um, as a child psychiatrist, one of the things that we we often assess is the safety, the um, uh, the safe the safety of space of a child. You know, their home, not just their home, but the, their school and the community in which they play and and, and live. And um, you know, a child's experience of living with with say gang violence, for instance, that's a that's an example people can relate to. You know, um, so you know. Um, random gunshots or, or bullets flying, that, that's a lot different than a child dwelling in a space where they can go outside and play and know that they're not just their parents, but other parents are keeping that space safe for them safe. to play and develop. 
Right. Interesting. Well, this is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Diane St. Fleur, Upstate Child Psychiatrist. Um, well, let's talk about how mental health is related to trauma and violence. You talk about gunshots and, I mean, that's violence and trauma in the, com- in the communities. Um, so how is that related to mental health? Um, trauma is a uh, huge part, uh, and, and so is violence, a huge, a huge part of mental health. Uh, on many levels. I'm, I'm also forensically trained, and so I've had the privilege of working in um, correctional facilities. And a uh, majority of the um, people that are incarcerated or, or waiting um, for trial are have had some exposure to trauma and could uh, qualify as having significant uh, PTSD. Um, <clears throat> and so I, I say that to uh, to mean that um, trauma affects one's um, mental health. It's it's just that it's just that simple. If you look at it on the biological level, so if you're just thinking about the brain, and if you liken the brain to like a limb or something, uh, witness seeing someone die, um, being physically or sexually abused, um, seeing mom and dad fight um, in domestic violence situation, hearing the yelling and the screaming, we call it high expressed emotions. Um, um, Every time you step out your house and you have to be careful because there might be some people trying to bully you, um, whether it's because um, um, uh, of who you're connected to, whether it's because of your sexuality, the point is, is that that's like your brain being in a motor vehicle accident, if you will. It's a, it, it affects your brain the same way uh, an actual motor vehicle accident might affect your limbs. Um, and there's various severities of it. You know, it could be a, a minor fender bender all the way to a severe car accident. So when you think either of, way, it seems like you'd be under stress during that. And we hear how bad stress is for the body. Exactly. Also. Exactly. Great point. That's exactly it. And so your brain is under that stress and it causes a cascade of neuroendocrine effects. And it uh, and and, and then also it um, it changes your behavior. And um, if it gets really bad, you're you when us mental health providers are are dealing with PTSD, we're talking about a person whose brain is always feeling like they're under red alert. They're hypervigilant. They can't sleep. They can't attach. They can't feel loved or they can't feel like they're able to give loved. These are symptoms that you often hear in, in veterans who uh, come back after severe exposure to wow. combat. Um, you know, the, the, the wife says he's just a shell of himself. He used to be so loving. Well, that's part of when your brain is feeling like it's under that's attack. What happens. Yeah. And that can happen to anyone who's dwelling in uh, an unsafe environment, whether it's war and uh, across seas or whether it's here in, in our own local communities. And so your brain is always feeling like it's under attack. And, it, and, and if your brain is under that type of uh, stress and in that type of state, it's hard for it to develop. It's hard for it to make good choices and judgment. And oftentimes uh, it will grab whatever it tries to grab, whether it's alcohol or drugs, to to self-treat. Um, and it's hard to connect with 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 your your family and loved ones. 
so uh, trauma and violence um, um, are huge contributing factors to um, to the quality, uh, lowering the quality of life and affecting people's mental health. And um, it's important um, as a as a medical provider to be aware of the, the impacts of trauma. Oftentimes when a person is in, goes to an office other than, say, uh, a psychiatrist, who at, at that point, once a person has reached a psychiatrist, they've been through a number of providers. Um, and and but, but before that, oftentimes those questions, you know, aren't necessarily being asked. They don't necessarily mm-hmm. come up when you're, when you're getting vaccines or, you know, when you're right. there just to check a cough. But it affects the person as a whole every day. It doesn't, doesn't stop affecting that person. So how does community displacement um, add to the trauma and violence and the repercussions from that? Or how does the lack of community displacement, if you have a strong uh, community that stays strong year over after year after year, does that help mitigate some of that? So that's what my research about. Um, I, I would like to measure that. The question is, there isn't any research to, to really give any good indications on, on how we can measure the impact mm-hmm. of community displacement in terms of one's mental health if we consider it trauma but um um, my hypothesis is is that it's significant the question is 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 how to create a study design and 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 measure it in a way uh uh, with you know a standard reliable uh, uh methodology well let me ask you this with the um imminent uh interstate 81 changes and and all that's going to happen with that what do you suggest? What is a way to lessen the impact of there is going to be some community displacement? So yeah. how can the how can government go about? How can individuals go about making that less? Yes, and um, and I've been told by by members of uh, Syracuse Housing Development that they they've been making some progressive moves to mitigate the impact. And one of the ways is is in, including the community in in the process and the planning. Um, having them at the table at the beginning, so and, they have a say, so that they have a say, and, and it's an empowering, um, it's an empowering experience. The other thing that I think is important is, um, as I mentioned, Syracuse has had a legacy of of community displacement since the 1950s, um, since the the construction of 81 and 690, and um, before the communities d- displaced they were described in ways that were negative. As I told you before, uh, a lot of these communities were stable, had a had sense of stability. If we think about the 15th Ward back in the 1950s, we and, and it was here now, we might consider it a utopia. I mean, very stable, uh, cohesive network of, of members um, who, who cared about one another and, and created a village to raise children. And... And and that was taken away, but but you would be surprised as to how they were described, in order to get grant applications, they were described as blighted, as slum. So I think um, so. One of the other things, which is 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 one of the things I think is important to be aware of, is how we think of our communities or communities that we're not necessarily a part of, but are affected by community displacement, and and be conscious of the word usage, um, and understanding that even though it's a community that might live on this side of town and might have this number of people with housing vouchers does not mean it's not a community. It's a, it's a community with, with, with families who want 
the same type of peace, the same type of um, ability to um, raise their children as any other community. Mm -hmm. So I think it's important as um, mental health providers or medical providers to be um, to be conscious of how we might actually think of the community. Those um, are very good points. I appreciate it. Yeah. My guest has been child psychiatrist Dr. Diane St. Fleur from Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for the podcast and talk show HealthLink on Air. I'm psychologist Dr. Rich O'Neill with this week's checkup from the neck up. Goodbye, Paul, or a spontaneous hug. Well, folks, I came to work recently to hear that a friend from decades ago, who I'd fallen out of touch with, but who then became a colleague for another decade, was hospitalized suddenly. I emailed one of his best friends and asked what was up. Unexplained pain. They're checking him out. Okay, thanks. When I didn't see him a week later, I eat again. Any news? Yeah, not good. Pancreatic cancer. Whoa. Doesn't have long to live. How long? Maybe a few weeks. Whoa. Is he taking visitors? The family's asked for no visitors right now. A few days later, I eat again. Visitors yet? No. I mulled this one over. I didn't want to miss a chance to see him. Is this one of those rules that it's okay to break? After all, I knew him even before he got married and had a family. I decided to walk over and poke my head in the door, hoping he'd wave me in. I'm looking for his room and a nurse asks if she can help me. I'm looking for Paul's room. She says, he's asleep. From how you said that, it sounds like he's never going to wake up again. Is that right? Yes. Okay if I just look in and say goodbye? Sure. I looked in. Yeah. He was all IVs and hoses. Gone. Too late. Standing there, I remembered a few months before we were chatting in the hall reminiscing on wonderful times long ago, connected to some loving feelings that had gone unexpressed. Suddenly, I had an impulse to let him know that with a hug, something we'd never done before. We hugged. It felt just right. He said, quite a journey we've had, Rich. Yeah, thanks, Paul. We smiled at each other and said goodnight just in the nick of time. I'm Rich, glad to be alive, O'Neill. Thanks for checking in. Coming up next, what would you do? Medical ethicists walk us through a case study. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air.
From Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. When patients lack decision-making capacity, physicians turn to surrogates on their behalf. Proxies designated by the patient have a stronger claim to make decisions for the patient than other people. However, who decides for the patient when no surrogate has been appointed by the patient? Typically, the patient's family is enlisted and disagreements can ensue. Here to explain how this delicate situation can be navigated are two bioethicists from Upstate Medical University's Department of Bioethics and Humanities, Dr. Thomas Curran, who also worked in neonatal intensive care, and Robert Olick, who also teaches courses in medical ethics and health law to medical students. Both are members of Upstate University Hospital's Ethics Consult Service. Thank you both for being here. Good morning, Kay Amber. So let's give a quick explanation of the Ethics Consult Service. So, uh, Amber, the Ethics Consult Service, is it's a consult that anybody can call. So family members, staff members, physicians, unlike other consults in the hospital, which have to be physician to physician. So this is a service that's set up so that anyone can uh, enlist it. We are available uh, 365 days a year from 830 to 5. You just uh, contact the operator and uh, one of the ethics consultants uh, will show up on site and evaluate the situation to provide guidance. Uh, there are six of us in total at this point and uh, we cover the community campus as well as upstate's downtown campus and Krauss Hospital. Um, and in addition to that, once a month all the consultants get together and re we review uh, all the consults that have taken place as a quality control measure. Uh, Okay, you said you um, arrive and provide guidance, so it's not like you arrive and make the decision. You don't fix the conflict. Rob? That, that's absolutely correct. So uh, ethics consultants are advisory. Uh, we make recommendations, um, but our primary focus is to try to help people to resolve disagreements and uh, clarify misunderstandings. Um, in the typical case, the authority to make decisions uh, continues to reside within the privacy of the doctor-patient and family relationship, uh, and hopefully our advice is helpful uh, in various respects, but it's their decision um, to work out. Okay, well, very good. We like to say that we are not the ethics police. Okay, <laughs> good. Yes. Well, um, I understand you've got uh, some cases that you can talk about. That sure. Well, uh, today we were hoping to talk about a situation that arises when uh, a patient loses decisional capacity and is not appointed a surrogate decision maker and how to kind of to wade through that situation. So I was just going to, I've de-identified uh, an old case that we've done uh, and I'll just set the table with that and we can talk about the case and, and some of the pitfalls that arose in this case. So uh, uh, it was an 83-year-old female who had uh, lots of chronic illness, type 2 diabetes, chronic heart failure, uh, and was admitted with uh, cellulitis at the hospital. While she was in the hospital, uh, she had a cardiac arrest and experienced um, a severe uh, central nervous system brain damage, and in addition to that, uh, her kidneys failed. She had a multiple-week trial of dialysis, which was unsuccessful, and she went on to develop end-stage renal disease. And so here's this woman in the hospital. Um, she's had a serious neurologic injury. She's uh, had multiple organ system failure, and she had no health care proxy or uh, no one appointed to make surrogate decisions for her, and she needed decisions to be made for sure. her. So she had, uh, what she did have was two sons uh, who uh, we uh, were approached to serve as surrogates via New York State legislation uh, through the Family Health Care Decisions Act. And so uh, anytime you have uh, more than one surrogate, <clears throat> 
different people can have different opinions and it just becomes complicated. So it certainly speaks to the importance of designating a healthcare proxy while you still have decisional capacity so people can respect your wishes. In this case, we, you do the best you can, you talk to the sons. Uh, and if I, I'll let Rob talk about the, our interaction with the sons. Right, so um, in, in a case like this, it, many times it's clear that the patient lacks capacity to make their own decisions, but it's always important to ask whether perhaps it's borderline and whether there's anything that the uh, healthcare team could do to restore the patient's capacity because part of respecting the patient's autonomy is looking for opportunities to potentially restore their capacity, let them make their own decisions. Um, here, as Tom was saying, in the absence of a healthcare proxy appointment, we have two sons, mm -hmm. and under our existing law in New York, um, they have co-equal authority. Um, two adult children have the same authority. It's not like there's a mechanism for choosing one over the other um, in if ordinary had, circumstances. Or based on birth, who's the older or whatever, they're well, both being, equal. Be, being a firstborn, I think it should be the firstborn, but it is not. Right. <laughs> Everyone gets that, equal that, that might be uh, good within the family, but if the patient doesn't decide that for themselves, um, then the law doesn't give us any guidance on that. Um, if there so, were a spouse, would the spouse take precedence? Yes. Okay. So in order of priority under the Family Health Care Decisions Act, uh, again, if there's no written appointment of someone else, uh, the spouse would be first on the okay. list. Uh, and then or adult, domestic partner. Or domestic partner, correct. Um, and then adult children would be next. Okay. So um, it's not uncommon that we get uh, adult children um, who don't agree. Now, first and foremost, their obligation is to try to make the decision that their parent would make uh, for themselves. Uh, they may disagree about that, or it may be that they don't know that much about what their parent would want, um, or they may have different views about what's best uh, for the parent. Uh, and so disagreement uh, between family members would be a, a fairly common situation where we as ethics consultants would be called in to try to explore the issues and, and help uh, to help to resolve those disagreements. Okay, yeah. I bet I bet that happens quite a bit. I can imagine. Uh, I think our experience is pretty typical of the national experience in that um, most ethics consultants deal with uh, issues near the end of life, and of those, um, more often than not, they involve patients who lack capacity to make their own decisions, and have family members who are not in agreement about what to do. The one you see in the newspapers um, is, you know, life support. Do we pull life support or whatever? Mm -hmm. um, so, and those are polar opposites. One who says yes, one who says no. How do you reach, I, I mean, you can't really compromise on that, right? I, I mean, how do you get them to? Well, I think that the, uh, what, where we see our role in that situation is, uh, in, in, in relative to this case in particular, was what, the, the two sons wanted to continue with aggressive therapy uh, for their mother with and the, and so we want to know well why is that because this is a person who's really really sick who's never going to have any meaningful recovery what, what, what are your thoughts is it because that's what mom wanted and she told you or is there some other rationale and when we explored this case further they were hoping that mom would um, go to a rehab facility recover and go back to her previous life so what they, but essentially what they had was a, a false belief. And so our, our, our role in that situation is to 
uh, to attempt to help them understand the gravity of the situation by f facilitating communication between the medical team uh, and, 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 the, and the two sons so that they can have a more realistic view of what's happening here. And, and in addition to that, um, anyone who's lost a parent knows that there is no good time to lose a parent. And so there's an element of personal grieving that each individual brings to the table in this where they're, they're thinking, they're not, in a selfish way they're not thinking about themselves, but they're in their own grieving process and uh, they need, it's helpful for them to be reminded that their role in this situation is not to select what they would want, but rather for them to facilitate selecting what they think their mother or their parent would want in this situation. And a lot of times, just kind of uh, uh, unpeeling that situation brings some clarity to the, the surrogates and allows them to have uh, a, a, an epiphany or, or a change of heart. In this particular case, that was not the case. Um, and that happens too, where they, they were just, they just the, the, the son said, look, we, we're hoping for a miracle, we want to continue. Uh, and so we really were at... A, despite a, knowing the facts of the case. Despite and knowing the facts. And in all fairness, um, medicine is an inexact science. And so sure. you can never say, this is what's going to happen. All, all the medical care team can do is say, here's, here's where we are, here's where we think we're headed, and here's what we think is the most likely outcome. So um, there is always that element of uncertainty. Uh, in this case, um, I, w there was a kind of a funny development, or an interesting development uh, right. uh, that occurred after our initial meeting with the sons. Yeah, so as Tom was describing, this situation where uh, the two sons were in agreement about what they wanted, but were in disagreement with the healthcare team and the doctor's recommendation is another common kind of conflict oh, okay. um, between the family decisions, family autonomy, and what the doctors recommend is in the patient's best interest. And uh, to emphasize the point, we tell family members that first and foremost, their obligation is to try to make the decision that their loved one would make um, for herself. Uh, and in this case, what surfaced was a living will, uh, which is a document that um, sets forth someone's wishes. Um, but in contrast to a healthcare proxy, a living will does not appoint someone to make decisions for you. Uh, and therefore, uh, again, the two sons were at equal level of authority uh, in decision making and would, would really need to agree. So they were agreeing here, but if they should come to disagreement, it would be another kind of dilemma uh, because neither had been designated by the healthcare proxy. Um, but they should be guided very strongly by what is known about um, their parents' wishes, and the living will is very strong evidence uh, of that. So that reinforced what the sons were doing or wanted to do? And actually, the living will, the sons didn't know about the living will. The living will came from a friend who, was, who had oh. been visiting, this, and the friend said, she gave, we talked about this. She, she knew. She should have been the healthcare proxy, but that's another story. Right. The, uh, and she said, here's the living will, where then the living will specifically stated that if I was unable to have any chance of meaningful recovery, I don't want to have mechanical ventilation, and I don't want to have artificial nutrition and hydration. So very, very specific. Very specific directive of, as far as you could tell, what her wishes were. And so this, that was the, the piece of information that allowed the sons to have clarity of thought with regards to what would mom want. 
here was a document where she stated what she would have wanted in that situation. And as Rob stated, although the living will um, uh, in New York State in particular does not have the same authority as a healthcare proxy, in this case, it helped uh, bring some light to the to answer the question okay. as to what the patient would want in this dire situation. So it's not a legal document, or or is it? I guess it is a legal document, a living will, but yeah, so it is. Uh, and so, so two points on that. Um, so as Tom was sort of suggesting, um, maybe um, in this case the patient should have picked her friend and made her the healthcare proxy. Um, and you can choose basically anybody you want who you trust as long as they're over 18 years of age. So it doesn't okay. have to be a family member. Um, the living will um, is a legal document. Um, it carries important weight as evidence of the patient's wishes, but it's considered to be a, of less uh, legal status, so to speak, because it's not recognized by statute in New York. It's been recognized in case law, um, but not in statute. New York is one of only three states in the country that has legislation recognizing only the healthcare proxy and not both the healthcare proxy and the living will. Um, and another factor that one would consider and that we would look at in a case like this would be when was the document written? How long ago? How specific is it? Um, how well does it fit the current circumstances as guidance of the patient's wishes? Um, and has the patient said anything to anyone else like her sons or family members um, about her wishes that was just a verbal communication that, and measure whether that's consistent or inconsistent uh, with the written document? If the living will surfaced and it contradicted what the sons wanted to do, would the living will have any power in New York? Well, that's a really good question. Um, oh, okay. Uh, and and I, I would say the answer is yes. Um, because, again, the first and foremost, the obligation both of the family and of the healthcare team is to try to ascertain and to honor the patient's own wishes. Um, but in a circumstance like that, we would again get into a conversation about well, here's the living will. What does it say? When was it written? Were there intervening? conversations that would suggest a way to interpret it and suggest whether the patient had changed her mind. Um, and then we uh, also asked the question, well, are, are the sons advancing um, a different view of what their mother would want, or are they advancing a view um, of their own um, that reflects their own um, uh, views and uh, perhaps the stress of making the decision and, and, and so forth? And I think the reason Rob hesitated is because we try and avoid that at all costs, coming to loggerheads between one document and circuit healthcare decision makers, because when that occurs, everyone will agree it becomes a mess. It typically goes legal. It's a night. It's just you. And so in this case, these sons, they were loving sons, and when they saw this living will and we talked about it, they loved their mother and they wanted to honor what their mother wanted, and that's what happens almost all the time. It's very rare. That's why I said before, we're not the police, and we're not here to say, you know, this document trumps what you say because here, it's not like that. You, 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 it's, a, it's a delicate touch to uh, help the surrogate decision makers see um, in a sensitive way what their mother had hoped for. And, and in this instance, that's exactly how it played out. When, they, when the son saw this, they came around to understand their, 
your role as a surrogate decision maker, the honor involved in that, the importance of not of not making it about you, and doing the and doing what they would honor what their mother would want it. And it, it was actually, it, it started off kind of a little contentious, but ended up being very um, a very healthy and a loving conclusion to the situation. Well, the way you describe living, well, it sounds like um, that's something that a person does not for themselves, but for their survivors, if it can help answer those questions or put them at ease or... Exactly. Although, as I'm sure Rob would agree, the, the, the limitation of the living will is it's, it's an if this, if this, then that document. You, you can't foresee all the different possibilities sure. of what can happen. That's where a healthcare proxy can work on the fly with the facts as they come across. Right. It absolutely is a strong argument for uh, designating a healthcare proxy uh, or alternatively a living will that it serves the purpose of not only um, projecting your autonomy into the future and having your wishes honored, but relieving some of the burdens of decision-making on family members. Very good. This has been very interesting. I appreciate it. My guests have been bioethicist Dr. Thomas Curran and Robert Olick. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Poets who also teach often tell their students that poems are everywhere. We just need to look, listen, reflect. Syracuse poet and publisher Eric V.D. Luft demonstrates how one might do this in his lovely meditation on reading in a car service waiting room. I knew it might be a long wait, so I brought copies of Blood and Thunder and The Healing Muse to read. I study them. The technician comes in and tells me that I need brake pads, an air filter, a cabin filter, a shock absorber, a tire rotation, and an oil change. Gladly I say, go ahead, do it, whatever it takes. A week ago, I was sitting in another waiting room, reading Wordsworth and John Clare, the waiting room of the ICU where my brother-in-law lay dying. We did not say even sadly, go ahead, do it, whatever it takes. We let him go. However complicated, it is relatively easy to put a car back together, to make it perfect again, humming along, running like new. How difficult to repair a person we let him go. Even the most smoothly running car is not as valuable, as important, as lovable as the most miserable, broken, moribund human life. been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. On next week's show, HealthLink on Air hears about the burn unit at Upstate University Hospital, and we explore physician-assisted suicide. If you missed any of today's show, 
Listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith. Thanks for listening.